Um, do, you, do you bring your Bibles to chapel? Yes, okay. Can I get 10 volunteers? Okay, uh, just, just stand up and say, I claim that one, okay? I need somebody to have uh, ready to read 1 Corinthians 10, one through four. Somebody ready to read Mark 6, three. Somebody ready to read Matthew 13, 55. Somebody ready to read Jeremiah 17, 13. Somebody ready to read Exodus 31, 18. Somebody ready to read Exodus 34, 28. Is that a favorite? Somebody ready to read 2 Corinthians 3, 6. So, <laughs> yeah, give it up for 2 Corinthians. Uh, can I get somebody to read Exodus 34, 15 to 16? Somebody to read Matthew 5, 27 to 28? Okay. Everybody got those? You don't have to, you don't have to stand up now and read them. I'll, I'll call you and then you just do it, okay? Um, <clears throat> right, should we begin? All right. Uh, I was in Israel. I got the chance to go to Israel and we got the best tour guide according to uh, Yelp. And he said something that blew my, my, my mind and I couldn't believe it. And I checked and I referenced it and I looked through it and I was like, oh gosh, I think he's right. He said, Jesus wasn't a carpenter. I was like, what? What do you mean? Of course he's a carpenter. Isn't he a carpenter? Um, Mark 6, 3. Who's got it? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So Jesus is a carpenter. Uh, and Matthew thirteen fifty five. Who's got that? Caleb, Caleb, my apologies for the technical difficulties. I'm so excited my mic is falling off. All right, Caleb, if you want, you just come up here and speak into my cheek. Okay, so scripturally, Jesus is a carpenter. What this tour guide said was no, most likely it's the King James Bible that made Jesus a carpenter. 90% of the construction material in Israel isn't wood, it's stone. And I was in Israel, it's like there are a lot of rocks. 
not a lot of wood. So the cultural context, the medium of wood or stone, that makes a difference. And I grew up thinking Jesus was a carpenter. I grew up with pictures and paintings of Jesus, you know, as a carpenter. I saw Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ where he's making a chair. I'm like, Jesus is a carpenter. Um, and in fact, it turns out the word is tecton in Greek, and it could mean mason, smith, builder, architect, right? It, it, it means master craftsman. And so Nazareth is like a little ways outside of a giant stone quarry in Israel. And it's pretty compelling evidence that Jesus wasn't a carpenter, but a stone worker. If Jesus is a stone worker, it changes everything about how you read scripture and it changes a whole bunch about how you read scripture, both literally and allegorically, because Jesus is the rock and the rock is our salvation. And the interpretation of Jesus allegorically is given permission to us by Paul in the New Testament, specifically in 1 Corinthians 10, one through four. Microphone coming to you. It's on. So it's Paul that goes back to the Old Testament and talks about the Israelites wandering out of Egypt and striking the rock. And it's Paul who says, and that rock was Christ. So it's Paul that gives us, as Christians, permission to interpret allegorically, to interpret typologically, to interpret that way. Uh, Dr. Kelly, what is the difference between exegesis and eisegesis? As I'm not a theologian, I think of exegesis as reading out of scripture what's really there, and eisegesis as I see Jesus where you don't. But I know that's not the right definition. What, what's the, what's the, what's the, okay, I see, eisegesis is, it's not a sin, but it's sort of dangerous, right? It's, it's, it's frowned on. So I'm going to give you some careful media ecological readings of the medium of scripture. And I'm gonna scratch one of the favorite itches I've had since becoming a Christian at 22. And I'm gonna try to show you something that I think hasn't been shown before about how to understand one of the most iffy uh, parts of the New Testament, which is John 8, one through 11, the story of the woman caught in adultery. My name is Reed, R-E-A-D, like read a book. I was raised without a television. I've always been a reader. I love reading. I like words. I was an English major. Any English majors here? Okay, give it up for the English department. Marshall McLuhan was an English major, an English professor. And uh, you know, it, it matters that you know the language of the tribe if, if English is your language. So it bothered me. How is Jesus the word? And yet, he never writes in all of scripture. 
And it really bothered me because I was always told growing up, this is the word of God. This is the word of God. And I was like, okay, well, if this is the word of God, then there should be some connection between Jesus and writing. Jesus and writing. Where's Jesus writing? And as far as I can tell, there are only two places. One in John 8, 1 through 11, where the text actually tells you the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. So you're like, mm, is, that, is that scripture or is it not scripture? In the commentaries, of which there are dozens, there's at least, I don't know, 30 to 40% of the commentaries don't even include a commentary on that section because it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. So Jesus is the word, but he doesn't write. The only other place he writes is in Revelation uh, 1.10, where John is on the island of Patmos, and the angel of the Lord comes to him and says to him, and it later turns out, he reveals himself, it's Christ, says to him, write down in a book what I'm about to show you. So Jesus commands John to write in a vision, but he himself never does any writing, even though he's the word. This bothered me. Maybe you already know this. Maybe this is super easy. Maybe this is super obvious to you. But it was, took me a long time because I kept, I kept going, why, why doesn't Jesus write? Why isn't he writing more? Why isn't it more like, you know, his word written down, that he's writing it? And it became very clear that Jesus is not the written word. Jesus is not the printed word. Jesus is not the texted word. Jesus is the living word, the spoken word, the speech, the breath of life, the sine wave, the sound element, the living, breathing, dynamic thing. Okay, so if Jesus is the word and he lets this woman go in adultery, what's going on there? Because there's dozens of interpretations and nobody knows what it means. What did he write? Because it doesn't tell you. And why is it in, but not in, and then later in the earliest manuscripts? It's not there and then it later gets added. And I think... Though I don't think I know the answer, I think these meditations on it may help us come to a better, bigger, fuller understanding of a couple of things. One of them is which the level in which the Old Testament and the New Testament read each other and translate each other, one of the ways the Bible is a living document is that how to read the New Testament through the Old Testament and how to read the Old Testament through the New Testament is an ongoing adventure that we have not yet had enough of, and for which we don't yet know the answer to the question. And this question, again, got provoked uh, in my mind in Israel. I asked my tour guide, I said, hey, and this guy was really good because he was Jewish, knew the Jewish scriptures, gave tour guides mostly to Christians, knew the Christian scriptures, but also was fluent in Arabic and knew the Muslim scriptures. So he was the perfect tour guide of modern-day Israel in the Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Arabic sense. And I could ask him anything, and if he didn't know the answer, he knew um, a pretty good estimation of it. His name is Shai Nahon, N-A-H-O-N. If you ever get to Israel, get him as your tour guide, okay? Can I get an amen? Okay. So uh, I said, Shai, what percentage of the Old Testament is Jesus referencing when he speaks in Acts in the New Testament? And he says, I don't know. And I'd heard a sermon here or there, 10%, 15%, 25%, you know, like a certain portion of things Jesus says is a reference to, right? Now, I'm now of the opinion 
And this is my opinion. This is not truth or factual. This is what I speculate. This is what I think. This is what I imagine. This is what I want to be true. But I'm now of the opinion, and it kind of is exciting, that I think everything Jesus said and did is a reference and replay of the Old Testament. And I think literally the actual thing that's happening is cognition in the Old Testament and recognition in the New Testament. So that God is setting up these principles and these patterns and these archetypes and these typologies, and then they get fulfilled and fulfilled and fulfilled, and ding, 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 people go, wait, weren't our hearts burning inside us when we heard him speak? Even though we didn't get what he was saying, we knew there was something there. So when Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know he's actually referencing what? Psalm? Psalm 22, which starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that psalm ends not in lament, but it ends in victory and joy. And so as a young believer, I'd read that and go, oh my gosh, God has abandoned his son and his son feels abandoned. This is terrible. It was 20 years later in my faith that I realized, oh, Jesus is actually making a specific cultural reference to a Jewish audience who would have known the reference and would have known this looks like defeat, this ends well, right? Totally changes how you read it. Totally changes your pessimism or optimism about how this moment is happening. That's one small example. John 8, 1 through 11, the woman caught in adultery, goes like this. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. If you want to read about Jesus as the rock, get my friend and fantastic musician, Garrett Soucy, S-O-U-C-Y. Get his book, Who Is This Rock? He's a pastor in Belfast, Maine. And he wrote a book in which he literally looks at every stone and pebble and medium-sized and large-sized rock and stonemason rock and temple rock in all of Scripture, and he exegetes it really brilliantly. There's hardly a rock in Scripture that doesn't get uh, turned over, and there's hardly a rock under which he doesn't find Jesus. It's very, very provocative and compelling reading. So there's a couple things to notice about this very weird story. And it's always the same thing with Scripture in my, pin, in my perception, which is the oddly specific details. It's oddly specific that this is the one time Jesus writes. It's oddly specific this is the one time that he writes, but we don't know what he wrote. It doesn't tell us. Which again got my media ecology brain thinking, ah, maybe it matters that he wrote, not what he wrote. 
it's oddly specific that he bends down on the ground to write. It's oddly specific that he writes with his finger, meaning he's writing in the dust. And it's really oddly specific that he writes twice, not once. All these little details are little hooks that say, hint, 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 look closer, read harder, analyze this further. And so I've been scratching this itch for 20 years, and this is um, about a year or two away from me for writing an essay on it, and it, it might actually turn into an entire book because there's so much that expands from this that you really could probably fill a, fill a whole book. So he writes, bends down on the ground, and he writes. But first, the woman is actually caught. She's actually committed adultery in the actual, right, in flagrante delecto sense. She is guilty. And in the Old Testament Jewish law, you have to have two or more witnesses to bring you to court and to charge you with the crime. And she has two or more witnesses, right? She's actually guilty. There's no question or doubt about her guilt. She is an adulteress. So, but the text tells you they bring him this charge as a way to test him because they're trying to entrap him. So you've probably heard this in a sermon before, and it's true. On the one hand, there's the Roman law that they're under, because it's an occupied territory. On the other hand, there's the Jewish law. And so they're trying to get Jesus on one of the two bull's horns of gotcha. If you say, stone her, right? You're a good Jew, but a bad Roman citizen. Gotcha. If you say, don't stone her, you're a good Roman citizen, but a bad Jew, and you bow the knee to Caesar, not to God, right? So this is a either way, can't win for losing situation. Jesus, he's not a carpenter, he's a stonemason for 17 years of his career, working with dad. Then, according to tradition, dad dies. In case you ever wondered, why didn't dad, Joseph, earthly dad, show up at the crucifixion? Tradition says he was dead. He'd already passed away. So it's possible, it's plausible that the three years of Jesus' ministry are the three years that Joseph is no longer on the scene and Jesus is free to be a wandering rabbi. And as rabbi, he's also a lawyer. He's also a physician. He's also um, a, you know, uh, great man of peace, an advocate, an activist. Uh, you know, he's, he's all these roles. <clears throat> so in this situation, he's a lawyer. He's called in to defend or condemn this woman. So how does he get out of the entrapment they're setting for him, but also how does he deliver justice and mercy to the woman? It's a really thorny, particular, specific question and problem he's got. And here's what he does. He says, so what do you say? The law says, that uh, we should stone such women, okay? The law says we should stone such women. What is the law? The law is the Old Testament law, given at Mount Sinai, written with what? The finger of God in what? The medium of stone. Who's the stone? The rock is Christ. Who's the one qualified in this audience to throw a stone at this woman? Only Christ. His law is actually written in stone. And so between the hardness of stone of the law and the softness of speech of Christ's breath 
and his living word, Jesus is going to do something magical, something amazing, something totally unpredictable and kind of shock everyone, especially her. So he writes. There's two references to writing with the finger of God in the Old Testament. Three if you include Daniel, but we're not going to go there because that would take all day. Exodus 31.18, somebody? gave to Moses what he had finished when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony tablets of stone written with the finger of God thank you tablets of stone written with the finger of God so in John 8 he says Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground now other reference Exodus 34:28 who's got that one Moses was there with the Lord 40 days. Hey, I'm sorry, can you take off your mask and just read it? Because even I can't hear you or understand you. Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Okay, so you know the story. Moses goes up to the mountain. He gets the tablets written by the finger of God. He takes them down and he sees they've made the golden calf and he smashes the tablets, okay? This is really important. God actually cares about the medium. Jacques Ellul, the lay theologian, he says, Moses had to smash the tablets because if he didn't, the Israelites would have set the tablets up as an altar and worshiped them. They would have become the new idol, okay? Instead, they get in trouble for the golden calf. All sorts of judgment happens. Moses goes back up the mountain. And the second set of tablets, Moses writes with his finger. Okay? Got that? Then when he comes back down the mountain, what happens to the tablets? They get placed inside the Ark of the Covenant, covered up and hidden. The Ark of the Covenant, a visual, beautiful piece of three-dimensional sculptural art, you might call it. And in the cherubim, right, with the wings facing inward, God says, in between there, I will meet you. God is invisible. God is not to be seen or worshipped. You can't make graven images, right? So where is God? He's not in the cherubim. He's not in the thing. But the law is inside the covenant, hidden inside the, the ark. But where God meets the people of Israel is in their perceptual framing of him in what artists call the negative space between the two cherubim, okay? So it's an act of imagination to encounter the invisible but living God in that space knowing underneath that is the word written in stone, the law. Jesus is the law. It's the law that condemns you. It's the law that sets you free. Jesus writes once, and he bends down, and he says, uh, bent down on the ground with his ground, finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up, and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, Think about this carefully. Why does he break down, right? Why does he get twice on the ground? I think, and this is where I'm in danger of, I see Jesus where you don't. <laughs> this is my perception, this is my speculation, this is my interpretation. I think what's happening here is he's bending down to write once and saying, fully God. And then he's writing a second time and saying, fully man. He's declaring himself the God man. He's declaring himself God and man the Christ. 
I don't think the Jews at the time know that. I think they may perceive it later, which may be why this story by John, who's the most, the theologian, the most allegorical of the writers of scripture, puts it in later. But I think they might have understood the reference as something else in the Old Testament, which was also the other reference to writing. Jeremiah 17, 13, who's got that? Uh, Jeremiah 17, 11, or 13, rather. Is it 11 or 13? Um, you are reading Je- Jeremiah 17, 13. 13. Uh, o Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord in the fountain of living water. Okay. Uh, in other translations, it says, their names shall be written in the dust. Okay? Not just the word earth, but the, the dust. So... Uh, if you're up on the Temple Mount in Israel, uh, this is just rock platforms, smooth stones, and there's nothing up there but rocks and buildings and there's dust. So I don't think there's any uh, thing to find in speculating what did he write. I don't think it's possible to know what he wrote in the dust. I don't think the scribes and Pharisees who were there, saw, oh, that's my name, okay? I think what happened is they're like, he's being weird. He's bending down and writing. And then he says this thing, he was without sin, throw the first stone. They're like, okay, well, that's not me. Then he bends down again. And then what happens again is this oddly specific detail. Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, okay? Why would the older ones leave first, followed by the younger ones? My speculation is that they understood what he was doing. They understood, oh, wait a minute. It doesn't matter what he's writing. He's writing in the dust on the edge of the temple. He's saying we've forgotten, right? He's saying something here that's significant. Here's where it gets really interesting. So I, th- I think the older scribes and Pharisees go, uh-oh, right, we're in trouble, so we start leaving. So then the younger ones go, okay, well, if they're out, we're out too, right? But the woman who's caught in adultery, she's really guilty. She's really done this thing. Why isn't this in the first manuscripts? Well, is Jesus soft on sexual sin? Is Jesus like, you know what? Everybody messes up from time to time. I get it. No. He's not at all soft on sexual sin. Who's got Matthew 5, 27 to 28? Matthew 5, 27 to 28. Right, can you take your mask off and, and okay. speak clearly into the mic? You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery within her in this heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Okay, so... You don't often get a pastor saying, look, if you're having a hard time with masturbation, just go to the chopping block and chop your hand off. 
right? That's a little extreme. That's what he just said, though. So it's clear Jesus is not soft on sexual sin, and it's clear even if you thought about adultery, you're guilty of it. Again, I think that's why the earliest manuscripts didn't include this. I think they thought, wait a minute, he can't be that hardcore about adultery, even mental committing of adultery, and then this woman gets off scot-free, okay? So I think you have to go deeper, and in three minutes I'm going to try to do it. <laughs> I think there's two reasons she gets to go free, because Jesus is the rock, he is the law, right? He is the unchanging law of God, but he's also the spoken word of God. And what he does to get out of the entrapment set by the Pharisees and to let her free is he softens the medium. Between the living word and the hard rock, right, it's very interesting, is what? Between breath and stone is sand, is dust. He's actually crumbling the rock in order to do this. He's actually referencing in a certain way, or Paul is referencing in um, 2 Corinthians 3.6, the letter of the law kills, but the spirit of the law gives life. The letter of the law is the medium of stone written in stone by the finger of God, and it's stones that will kill her, literally. But it's Jesus' words and breath after writing in the dust, which the Pharisees pick up as, uh-oh, I think he's referencing Jeremiah. We better get out of here, right? Legally speaking, this is what's called a mistrial. Judge, jury, and executioner leave the courtroom. And why does she get to go free? Why is she actually not found guilty? Two reasons, I think. One, individually and specifically, who are there among her accusers? A crowd rabbling for blood, right? Kill her. She's guilty. She's actually guilty. Who's not there? Oddly specific omission, her husband. Her husband isn't there in the crowd. If he was, it would probably have specified that. Again, I'm interpreting here. I'm reading into it. But he's not mentioned. Now, who's the actual... Adulteress. The actual adulteress in the room is Israel. The actual husband in the room is God. Idolatry is spiritual adultery all through the Old Testament. Uh, the starting, there's dozens of these, but starting with Exodus 34, 15 to 16, who has that? Okay, well, while you find that, idolatry is spiritual adultery. Adultery is physical idolatry. So Jesus, in letting her go free, is also saying, I am the Lord your God. I am his son. I am the God that brought you out of Israel and, Egypt and, and slavery. And you went whoring after other gods of other nations, which is why it was so important in all of the Old Testament that you not marry a woman from another tribe because that woman would lead you to worship those other gods. Okay? By the way, that's not a diss against women. That's a revelation of how strong they are. Even now, modern marketers will tell you, it doesn't matter who makes the money, 75% of all household decisions are made by the woman, right? Uh, in Switzerland, up until 1972, women didn't have the vote. And the tour guide at this little village in Switzerland told us, this is where the women of the well would, would gather around the well, wash their clothes on Mondays, and do the laundry and decide how their men were going to vote, right? In other words, the woman's influence is very strong in the house. And so... Don't commit spiritual adultery. God, all through the Old Testament, says, I love you. I want you to come back to me, even though you've been unfaithful. And the whole story of Hagar, uh, 
and, 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 the, and, the, and the, the marrying of the prostitute, right, is sort of a, a type of how God's love is bigger than an actual infidelity and infraction. He says, I still love you. You're still my bride. And so Jesus is saying, hey, I'm fully God. I'm fully man. I, the bride groom of the church, love you and I want you to come back regardless of your continued infidelities. So it's not that sexual sin is okay, it's that despite that, God's love is still bigger than that. And I think by studying carefully the medium of the stone, of the, of the dust, and of the breath and speech of God, that's how Jesus allows the woman to be free and go and sin no more, and how he allows us to realize, oh, I have not been that faithful, and calls us back to, to further um, deep love. Uh, as Bruce Marshall put it, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. That's a quote that's often attributed to G.K. Chesterton, but it's actually Bruce Marshall, apparently. Um, okay, so we're out of time. Let me pray for you, and then you can be dismissed. Father in heaven, between your eternal word and your law written in stone that is hard and enduring and durable and that we can count on faithfully and know that it does not change and your gentle breath give us the word of your life and help us to live in and through you and have life more abundantly. In Jesus' name, amen.